Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Gracious Father, shine your light on our way this morning, we pray. Show us what you are saying and by your spirit, help us hear everything you have to say to us, we pray for your glory. Amen. Amen. The key application to this chapter is found in verse 11. And it is simply this. Grow up. Grow up. Let me read it. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Grow up. Stop being a child. Spiritually, you should be a man by now, Corinth. In a sense, this actually sums up the whole Corinthian problem. Childishness, immaturity. Uh, That was Paul's beloved Corinthian church. He planted it. He spent 18 months there with them. Only in Ephesus did he stay longer. And clearly, he remained in very close contact with them. There was Ebony letters before this one, and clearly there's two Corinthians afterwards. He was in every way, still chapter 4, verse 14, their spiritual daddy. But Paul's beloved church was dogged by so many problems. Just imagine what it would have been like to be there when you cast your mind over the problems we've encountered. Chaos, arrogance, lawsuits against each other, division over leaders, I could easily go on. But why? Why? The problem was spiritual childishness. Paul certainly doesn't pull any punches, does he? He is disciplining them like any loving father would, and he's very straightforward about it. Remember chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. They were spiritual babies, suitable for the crash, perhaps. Not sure they were ready for Sunday school yet. Next week, he is going to say to them, chapter 14, verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Of course, be infants of evil, be innocent and unknowledgeable about that, but in your thinking, Grow up. Grow up. They were like adults, still wearing nappies, spiritually. Perpetual Peter Pans, if you like. Never growing up when they should. And notice, he isn't being down, if you, if you like, on being a child per se. There's nothing wrong with being spiritually youthful, especially for the new convert. I think it's kind of inevitable. There's nothing wrong with being a baby. We all want babies here after all, won't we? It is by definition how we start life. But what would you say if, in 20 years' time, you saw one of the 10 a.m. babies, all grown up, but still wearing nappies, still sucking their thumbs, and still sitting in high chairs and having tantrums over church family lunches? The problem isn't being a baby. It's not growing up, as you should in advance of the new creation. We are heading to the new creation together, so start growing up and getting ready for it. Peter Pan, who I think was my childhood hero, is a very attractive fantasy, isn't he? But the actual reality of a boy who never, ever grows up 
would be a tragedy, especially spiritually speaking. After all, one of the most persuasive encouragements to infants is this. Don't you want to be a big boy now? Nobody wants to behave like a baby, especially when they should be mature. Do you see the point? Corinth, grow up. You should really know better by now. And this would have stung the proud, worldly wise Corinthians. They thought they had all the knowledge in the world, but they were lacking in love. And just to be clear up front, there's a two-stage maturing happening. Uh, Firstly, in this life, uh, we grow. We grow in maturity as Christians together, grow up into the body of Christ, and the key to this is love. But also, secondly, in the life to come, we fully know God. That's verse 12. Now I know in part, but then I shall know in full. So maturity is a this-life reality. Ultimate knowledge of God is reserved for the world to come. Completion of that maturity. And that dynamic explains what's going on here in verse 11. Grow up now, Corinth, ready for that day. Let love dominate all your use of spiritual gifts. Haven't you learned the basic ABCs yet? Spiritually speaking, give up your childish ways. So now, this most famous of chapters starts to make a little bit more sense to us. Despite its fame around the world, this chapter is really a highly inappropriate wedding and funeral reading. Did you feel the tone of it as David read it for us? This is written for Corinth, his established, supposedly mature church. They are adults still wearing nappies. It's a rebuke, a strong rebuke. It's not written for the newly engaged couple to longingly stare into each other's eyes mistily over, or indeed for Princess Diana's funeral for that matter. So, having captured the tone and the aim of this whole poem, let's see the specifics of what Paul is saying. Verses one to three, verses one to three. Without love, you have nothing. Without love, you have nothing. Paul takes their most precious gift, tongues. Verse one, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. To exercise tongues without love is like a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. What's he saying? Is he referring, he is referring here to the pagan temple. The place, presumably, where Paul found the Corinthians all those years ago when they first heard the gospel. The gongs and the cymbals were always used in the pagan temple to wake up the so-called gods, or as chapter 12, verse 2 puts it, mute idols. In other words, they achieved nothing. Nothing. Because mute idols are nothing. How can you wake up something which isn't even there. So if you use your spiritual gifts without love, you're as bad as the pagans? I think that's what he's saying. You have nothing. How insulting. However, if verse one is insulting, then verse two is even more surprising. For 
The first one was their favored gift, tongues. Then verse two was Paul's favored gifts. I mean, just imagine this person in our midst here today, someone who had prophetic powers, uh, understanding all mysteries um, and all knowledge and had faith to move mountains. Just imagine having somebody here who had those gifts. Wouldn't they be highly prized here? Wouldn't you be badgering them every single week to answer your questions and teach you about Jesus? But they have not love. So nothing. It almost feels like Paul has overstated here, doesn't it? But no, nothing. The first one was their favorite gifts. Verse two was Paul's favorite gifts. Then verse three is the world's favorite gifts. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Even the world understands that if, I give your, if you give your money to the poor and you martyr yourself, then surely you've done all that you can. And he's pointing to the most dramatic examples of personal sacrifice anybody could imagine. Give away all your stuff and yourself. I've been rereading um, J.C. Ryle's excellent little book on the five English reformers. Uh, those amazing men who literally were burnt for their faith. Yet even if they didn't have love, it would have gained nothing. Even that without love is of no value in God's sight. This is stark, blunt, harsh, straightforward. But notice, though, that he doesn't deny any of these gifts. And that's quite important for us as we move into chapter 14 next week. He's not down on gifts. But take whatever spiritual gift that we have, that we value, in fact, whether it is in this list or not, put it into an equation. Without love, it's nothing. Meaningless, pointless, worthless, a noisy gong. Nothing. Nothing. See, this is the most brilliant chapter to insert between chapters 12 and chapters 14. As prior to asking them to earnestly desire anything specific, which he did at the end of the last chapter, he puts into place the key ingredient. Love. This all begs an obvious question, though. What exactly is this love that Paul is talking about. And this is amazing. Paul clarifies for us, verses four to six. See, it would be so easy for us to define love in a very worldly way. It's not a misty-eyed feeling or an emotion. The Greeks actually had a specific word for that. But that's not what is used in this chapter. It's an attitude, a determination to do good to others, whether or not they've done good to us. So this love is the love of God which transforms us and shows in our life as practice towards others. I'll say that again. This love is the love of God as it transforms us and is shown in our lives and practice towards others. Notice that Paul presumes 
a transformation of a believer. The truly mature Christian will always be being changed by the Spirit. And so it's very down to earth. It's very practical. It's almost gritty. Entirely other person-centered. What a challenge this is to our natural, normal outlook. In a world that's all about self, rather than loving God and our neighbor, this will mark us out as very unique. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's how our body should be working. And notice, it isn't so much a deliberate portrait of Jesus here. He's not actually even mentioned. Isn't that surprising? But rather, this is an attempt by Paul to shame and expose Corinth's lack of love and arrogance. It's less God is love, but more love is not like you. Love is not like you. See, it's striking that Paul is, uh, Paul's main definition is what love is not. What love is not. That's because our sinful, self-centered human love is the polar opposite to Christ's love. And just imagine the, the Corinthians' pained, embarrassed, squirming faces as this was going to be read out to them. Of course, it's never read rightly at weddings. Um, there it is. It goes like this. Love is patient. Love is kind, just like you guys here. No, it's more, uh, love is patient, not like you. Uh, love is kind, uh, really unlike you, and so on and so forth. Uh, let's just work through it and feel the rebuking contrast Paul's after. Uh, verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. Yet chapter 11, they were so impatient that they couldn't even wait for the poor to arrive before gorging themselves at the church family meals. And they were so unkind that they didn't even leave anything for the latecomers. Verse 4 goes on. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. Yet chapter 4, they boasted in their leaders. Chapter 8, they boasted in their knowledge. And chapter 12, they boasted in their gifts. Verse 5. Love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. Yet chapter 8, they insisted on their own rights, never caring for others' feelings. And chapter 6, far from making light of wrongs, took each other to court. Verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Yet chapter 5, they didn't seem to care about sexual immorality. In chapter 6, they didn't care if somebody slept with a prostitute. They were a short-sighted bunch who lived in the moment, they'd say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But love is a long game approach. Just look at the beauty of verse seven. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So love is resilient, never suspicious, believes the best in everyone, and is almost naive. It never gives up on people, and it forgives over and over and over and over. Can you see why Paul had to write this to them? Their behavior was at the polar opposite of Christian love 
and true spiritual transformation and maturity grow up. This stinging rebuke makes them like adults in nappies, immature, spiritual infants in Christ. And actually, who here can honestly read this and not on some level identify with the Corinthians, pained, embarrassed, and squirming? I wonder how easy it might be to align with the Corinthians if we went through our weeks and reflected where we were lacking love. So, love, it's essential. Without it, you have nothing. And it was lacking. Love was not in them. But lastly, and crucially, why? Why was love so essential? Why must we have love as the fundamental ingredient in spiritual matters? He turns to talk of what we have now and what we'll have then on that last day. Because love lasts. Love lasts. Love never ends. The great punch to the gut for the Corinthians is this. The very gifts they prize so highly are going to vanish away. Did you hear that when Amy told us that earlier? Passing away. Verse 10. When the perfect comes, when Jesus returns and the new creation begins, then nobody will need any spiritual gifts because then we'll know in full, not in part. The gifts are all helping us now to be mature. It's actually a big clue as to the purpose of all spiritual gifts, i.e. to know God better, to know God better. But then on the last day, and only then, will, we, will, we be, will there be nothing partial about our knowledge of God? Oh, what a wonder that is to finally know God perfectly, in full. I can't wait. See, they prize knowledge so highly, and you can see why. It's a good thing to want. Hence, why Paul ends in verse 12. Now I know, even I, Paul the apostle, now I know in part Now we see in a mirror dimly. You see, mirrors in the first century, they weren't made of glass, but of metal. So they really did only offer a dim, glum, murky view of yourself, not a scarily blunt and far too honest view that we'd really rather not see. But verse 11, it really stands out in the logic, doesn't it? Not just as another illustration, but as Paul's rebuke, his call to imitate him. When I became a man, when I became a man, come on, Corinth, join me in maturity now. Give up the nappies spiritually. Where is the love? Because verse 13, three things abide or remain. Remain, that is, beyond into the new creation. But even these three things Paul's classic abiding trilogy, some of them are going to change somewhat. I mean, just think about this for a moment. On the last day, our faith is going to morph into sight. That's a wonderful thing. Our hope 
will finally and be completely fulfilled. But love, huh, that alone will continue unchanged. Think of it like this. Does God have faith? Does God believe? No, no, he trusts in nobody. Uh, we have the faith in him. Uh, what about hope? Does God have hope? No, because, well, he's outside of time. He, the past, the present, and the future are all exactly the same to God. Uh, there's nothing in God that hopes for a better future or that looks to the future to explain the present. God's beyond those things. So God doesn't believe. God doesn't have hope. But does God love? Well, like we've been thinking about all morning, this is somewhat more obvious to us, isn't it? It's less does God love, but rather that God is love. See, I think the point is this. Uh, faith and hope are a means to an end, so to speak. Uh, we believe in Jesus, then we'll see him. We hope for everlasting life, and then we'll get it. Through that, by his spirit, we become now ever more like him, him who is love. Love, then, will be the thing to continue unchanged into the new creation, eternity. So it's quite clear, isn't it? Stop behaving like a child now and love Corinth. Get on with loving each other because of the then that is to come. According to Paul, chapter 12, verse 31, this is the most excellent way. The most excellent way. Love above all else. A love above all else. And it is crucial that we realize this is a way of life. This is the most excellent way. Not just some actions sometimes, but the way of the mature Christian body. Love of God and love of neighbor. I wonder if we really believe this. Do we believe that how we use any spiritual gift is more important than the gift itself, or anything else for that matter. So I guess uh, we might need to challenge ourselves and, if you like, devalue spiritual gifts in our thinking. Spiritual gifts are a means to an end. They are definitely not bringing heaven to earth. Quite the opposite, in fact. Have you ever heard a so-called charismatic saying that? Uh, this meeting was like a glimpse of heaven because of all the tongues or oh, well, they were so clearly touched by the Spirit because of how they spoke or what they did. There are no tongues in heaven. Or the Bible teaches, for that matter, in fact. Spiritual gifts are therefore a means to an end. They cease in heaven. Let's view them rightly. You won't need Bible teachers in heaven or prophecy or tongues or administration, or hospitality, because we'll be with him perfectly. Of course we won't need them. You know, in heaven, nobody's going to be saying, oh yeah, that guy, that guy was the tongues guy. Uh, or did you hear his preaching? That was amazing. Uh, or that was the moving mountains by faith guy. 
No, we'll be saying this to each other. That's the love person. That's the love person. Uh, They served because they loved people. And the Spirit changed him to love. Let's devalue gifts in our thinking. I don't know what you think St. Helen's favoured spiritual gifts are. Uh, Perhaps getting the right answer, um, biblical accuracy, even prophecy. Uh, Come back next week to hear more about how that is what we should all desire, though. But this chapter will be rebuking our favoritism, won't it? It must be. Without love, nothing. Do we believe that? More to the point, do we really act like we believe that? And it's worth saying negatively, uh, this isn't a soft love. It's not a soft love. The world will say that love means you are nice to everyone. Uh, Let's never reduce this to empty platitudes uh, and a smiley face. Uh, Love is robust. It's gritty. It's truth-driven. Did you remember that from verse 6? It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices at the truth. Uh, Love doesn't tolerate all behaviors and disagreements. Just read the letter again and Paul's loving correction of sin to see that. He brings the rod to the Corinthians in chapter 4. Or are we to believe that Paul did not actually love this church? So what kind of church do we want to be? What do we want to be? Grown up? Mature? Being built up until that last glorious day together? Or like an adult in nappies? Corinth was out of control. There was no doubting that there, was a, there were lots of seemingly sincere Christian believers there, frenzied with actions, but missing maturity. We're going to see lots more of that next week. Indeed, every Christian should be marked out by that trilogy, shouldn't they? Faith, hope, and love. Love itself being the very essence of God and being manifested and shown clearly in a new life of the Christian. This is not making noises like the pagan temple, a gong or a symbol, but truth-driven, God-centered, which grows us until the last day. In a sense, chapter 13 is just a trailer for chapter 14. Next week, we're going to hear which gifts are the gifts that serve other people and then how we're going to use those with love. So what's this saying? I hope you've heard me rightly. Grow up. Grow up. Grow up in Christ with each part doing its work properly. So as we build from last week, reflecting on what gifts we have, let's hold up this standard to them all. How we use them. How we use them. Love. Every spiritual gift is to build the body and help us grow up together. Although you have to come back next week, as there's lots more that needs to be said. Let's pray as we close. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Gracious Father, in your kindness, we pray 
that you would help us see where we are lacking love. Help us really believe that any gift without love is nothing totally vacuous in your sight. In your kindness, show us where we need to grow up, where we are being spiritually immature. And in your kindness, help us never forget this lesson. Help us never be as bad as a pagan temple, we pray. For your glory. Amen.